Hello and welcome and happy Monday. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, with David Cooper. I'm your host, David Cooper. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, the show where no one's listening and no one cares. The show where every episode's the last one. I am joined by the very Chicago-based, the very Dennis, the very Lee. He's a food writer whose goal is to ruin food for everybody. He's got a substack called Food is Stupid, and he also writes for The Takeout. I've often had Dennis on shows with me talking about his insane food creations, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Things like dishwasher ramen, pretty self-explanatory, and mapu tofu, that's mapau tofu made with organic kitty litter. But a lot of the cool conversations I've had with Dennis, you know, the deep stuff, they never actually happen when I'm interviewing. I've always had to interview him very quickly in time segments. So now we're going to dig a little deeper. We're going to have that conversation on this show that me and Dennis have had so many times without the mic on. He's a really interesting guy. Really looking forward to this one. Give it a listen. Or not. I'm not your mother. I can't tell you what to do. Glad to see you too, man. How you been? Good. How about you? I so you're gonna have to catch me up on what happened to you. Yeah, let me get the Nicorette out of my mouth. Uh, what happened to me? I got about two, three weeks notice that the show that I was doing was gonna be canceled, mm-hmm. and that was that. I had a great last episode that I was proud of, and then the week after the show, I hung out with these. Uh, I I don't know for whatever reason, I found myself with like two well-known people in Canadian media, like in New York, a guy named George Strombolopoulos and another guy named Evan Solomon. And they like tweeted a photo of me. I'm like, this is my new life. I'm post this job. I'm with these famous people. And then the crash came and the crash lasted a long time. I intended Uh on starting this podcast. I don't know, maybe December, January. Yeah. And in the non-literal sense, I could not get out of bed. Creatively, at least I couldn't get out of bed doing other stuff i was doing a bare minimum to keep my career alive i guess like i was still i still i was and still am doing appearances for my former employer against my better judgment on somebody else's show that are a lot of fun and i get to plug this show but yeah i i just was in a fucked state i was unhappy we can swear by the way oh sweet (laughs) fuck shit ass balls Uh, i don't know (laughs) balls Balls is really the one that'll get you in trouble uh, by the fcc uh, and the FDIC and the FDA, um, <laughs> USDA. Yeah. And I kind of, it was, I was in this weird state where I knew that if I started working again, that I would love the work and be engaged with the work. And I would start seeing people and talking to people and going out more and not feeling agoraphobic, but like, I didn't want to do those things. Right. Well, when you don't have a job, it's sort of like, um, that kind of stuff feels like a huge chore. Cause I've been there before and it's good for you to get out there and see your pals or like talk to people just to get your, your stuff moving again. But then kind of that whole um, act of, of getting out and doing stuff just sounds scary because you just don't have anything to identify with. You know what I mean? Like I was talking about this with someone it's, it's an episode I'll air in a few days. It's a guy named David Cooper. He lives in Chicago. Really? 
That's hilarious. He's an amazing guy. I had this idea of interviewing other David Coopers one night, so I got like 10 of them on, you know? One <laughs> one was my cousin, who's like, I don't know, a real estate agent, kind of a boring interview. But then all of a sudden, the principal horn player for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra said, yes. Oh, that's so cool. And his name's David Cooper. And the interview was fucking amazing. This guy had a photo of being the principal horn player on his wall ever since he was a kid or something. <laughs> He's like, that's the job I want. He showed up for interviews for this job three times over the course of, I don't know, seven years. He didn't get it. And he just said, I'm going to practice more and come back. And he would do, you know, a stint in San Francisco, a stint in Berlin, a stint in Vic Victoria. And he just kept at the goal no matter what. And as I'm talking to this person, I'm like, you're amazing. That's so cool. Now, whenever I'm having creative struggles, I just call him because he's like the pep talk I need. But Oh, good. It's good that you can, you can like directly talk to him, too, and that he's receptive for for those conversations, you know. I don't even know why I got down this train uh, mentioning this person. We're just figuring out what you were doing, and I don't even know what you're doing now. So you got your own podcast? Yeah, I launched this podcast. I started doing the work, and I feel a lot better. But, um, oh, I was talking about labels, the loss of labels with this guy because – he had his dream job and he just lost it. And I think oh. he's going to end up in LA doing, working for the LA, whatever, Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra, who knows what they're called. Um, but yeah, I lost the label. Like I work so hard to be a radio personality and not just a podcaster mm -hmm. as if being a podcaster is bad. Like the top podcasters wake, make way more money than the top radio people with the exception of Howard Stern, but whatever. Uh, although I think Joe Rogan makes more than Howard Stern. I don't know. Not that I like Joe. Oh, that dude, that dude makes some filthy money. And I don't, I don't know why I don't, I don't, I don't know. I can't stand that guy at all. Yeah. Not that I like him, but anyway, I just, I don't know. I didn't want to be around people. I was feeling agoraphobic whenever I was around people. All I could think is I want to be home. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And now that I'm working again, that's all shifted. And so, yeah, I'm doing an episode of the show a day, uh, five days a week. And it's been a lot of fun and I get to be more creative and do weird shit. And I don't have a network being like, you need to do more of this. But yeah, that's kind of what happened. Um, does that answer the question? Yeah, that, that answered the question. What's it called, first of all? It's called This Is Going Well, I think, with David Cooper. Okay. All right. And do you sell something like that? Or do you just like get run ads on it and then kind of... We're going to figure out how to monetize it. But yeah, uh, so far it's just me doing it. Well, I mean, that's where you start. I mean, with my newsletter, I was just like not expecting anything out of it. Um, and I just started. And the thing is, you just do it for a, a while and people will notice you'll eventually get money, just probably not as much as you want right off the bat. The only thing is I, I and it got to my head uh, and everyone thought I was making nothing. Mm -hmm. But the the radio show like paid. OK, <laughs> yeah, you told me you told me you were making a lot of money from it, considering. Yeah, um, for creative work. I wasn't making yeah. half a million dollars a year like a Wall Street fucking banker, but it was good. It was wow. decent money. I mean, yeah. So that's got to feel good um, that you were able to to do that. I mean, if you had the chance to go back to a career like that, would you just do it? I don't know. I was just talking about that with my girlfriend because she's like, I didn't see you for a year. Yeah, um, that's oh, true. When I called this guy David Cooper, the horn player, when the show got canceled, I was feeling really down on myself and stupid and all that. And like not having the courage to even do the last two, three weeks of the show. And the first thing he says to me on the call is, I'm a thinking all negative. I'm an idiot. They don't like me. I couldn't have done this all along. I'm an imposter. Like all that negative shit swirling in my head. First thing he says to me, you should be so proud of what you've accomplished, how much you've learned and how much you've grown your craft. And I'm like, yes, I'm so glad I called you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You need to hear that. You, you need to hear it. 
because when when it feels like you're not going anywhere, um, you realize other people have seen you from the outside and they're like, they've been paying attention to you. You just, they just don't say anything, you know, and especially with a job where you're kind of, you've got a public personality to show, you know, people are paying attention to you. I suppose. Can we pay a little attention to you, Chicago-based food writer, writer at The Takeout, author of Substack, Food is Stupid, and perhaps your most important accomplishment, Twitter user handle owner, at Fart Sandwich. <laughs> well, Twitter's not very useful anymore. No, but the, the nickname is still my favorite thing about you. I feel like these conversations you and I have had never actually happened much in interviews Things about doing what, what you love, feeling like you need to do something as a creative, what it means to be creative, an artist, I don't know, like what it means to do it for an organization, what it means to do it as an independent creator. You've gone through all this shit. You have parallels to what I'm talking about. Mind you, it's yeah. a little different. It's chefing. Yes, chef. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of that. I didn't think the Bears second season could be good because I'm like, it's going to be boring. They're just opening a restaurant. But it was good. <laughs> it was very good. And the the parts about that, it were were just like kind of the inner workings of how, how people get ready and gear up for big projects like that. And um, what it's also like to just be in a restaurant in like building mode, because you have no idea what's about to happen. You could flop. Eventually, you know, that restaurant is going to have like quiet. This fictional restaurant is going to have like quiet days. And how do you handle the quiet days? How do you handle the th- the times you don't think something um, is going well or whatever, but kind of that wind up to opening a restaurant, super exciting. It's also like, you know, dull and frustrating and the toilet breaks and all like that stuff really happens. I'm sure it does. It just happens. And it's worse when you have to use, when that toilet is supposed to service, like, you know, hundreds of people that come through the night for the night. And you're just like, uh, I can't operate without this thing. Can I, you know, and you just think this is so stupid, but that's just, that's what will cost you money. Exactly. And I don't know how it came up on the show exactly, but this came up for me when I was mulling over quitting my corporate job to be a broadcaster, to be an interviewer, whatever, media personality, who knows what my label is right now. Radio personality, fine. Um, my cousin said to me, and he's a creative, he lives in LA, he works in film and television, and I don't I think he makes an okay living, but it's an impossible industry. And he just said to me, do you need to do this? And that theme came up in the show. Like, do they, because there's so many restaurants that are failing. It's such an insane business to get into, especially if you don't already have money and you're not like a rich restaurant group. I don't know if that was covered in the show, but that's the only way I could see it as a a rational person opening up a restaurant. If it's not a huge financial risk to you because you have other successful restaurants. Yeah. Uh, But this feeling of needing to do something, has that come up for you? Yeah. I mean, you know, you and I do creative work. And so without, without that, I, I don't know. I would lose my identity completely probably because I'm so used to just spouting Dennis, Dennis, Dennis everywhere that without anybody to listen to me, that would just feel kind of, I don't know, feel uh, like I didn't have any meaning to what I was doing. You know, it's not like working at a factory or something like that. There's anything wrong with it. You know, you create in your own way, but I need it. I I need to put all my stuff out there and kind of like connect with people that way you do podcasting radio and connecting with people verbally and i write and connect to people just like through their eyeballs but like you know that makes that makes me feel like you know whatever i'm doing has value to it people i connect with the people who read if you couldn't connect with them would you still do the writings for you uh probably yes just well you know it's a good that's a good question but yeah i think so because writing is like uh you know i write about food everybody thinks your love about love of food is really what drives the writing 
but it's really it goes the other way around like you know you have to be you have to enjoy the writing part or creating part um to really you know showcase the food that you're eating or showing or you know trying to teach people about if that makes any sense so the communication skills are more important than the food ever is so you know like the draw with anthony bourdain um rest in peace man um it was like the draw was the food you know at first that's the hook you see the pretty pictures of food and then you only wanted to stay because you heard him talk and you were like this dude's really fascinating or he's cool or he's funny or he's an asshole any of those aspects we are fascinated with right as a viewer and so it's it's important to um to remember and respect that it's all about the communication of all of it you know to me, that shows about his kind of connection with humanity more than it is the dishes that he's eating, you know? Right, right. And everybody would watch it because the, the food looked so cool or it would be in like a really cool locale. But it was never really about that. He could he would talk about the food for like 30 seconds max and then ask the people there, like, what's your life like? And then that's, you know, the food makes sense in that context. Like, oh, here, well, I, I, I sling burgers in, in Oklahoma. But like, there's more of a story to that. You know, we all live our interesting lives. Those burgers came from somewhere. And, it, you know, you don't even have to care about the food. You just have to care about the people who are on the show. And the people wouldn't be on the show if they weren't eating the food and turning it into poop. I mean, that's I, I there's these grand like things that food writers, you know, TV show makers claim. And I kind of buy into it, maybe not as much as you and Anthony Bourdain, but that food kind of connects us as people on this very deep level. I mean, you know, I would be going out and finding good stuff to eat anyway and documenting it for myself. But yeah, it all just goes back to the broken toilet. <laughs> like you just, it's, you have to have it. That's the joy of talking about it is that you have to eat it. You have to have food. And like, at least we all have that one thing in common. And we also have to take dumps. So I like to joke about that too, which I do nonstop, which is also like part of my sense of humor, but it's like, who cares? It's not just dumps, though. You're also talking about uh, pee and phalluses. I, I was yeah, that too. I was tearing through your blog. I feel like I used to have you on my commercial show. You'd like we'd outrage everyone by the fun shit on your blog. But I just I know that in my conversations with you, we've always gone like so much deeper. But I was just looking at the Cacio e PP uh, recipe. <laughs> Honestly, it's just the title that caught me. You used a, a a penis dog treat to make Cacio e Pepe, basically. Yeah, I used I used this pizzle like those. They're called bully sticks or pizzles, and uh, uh, if you they're just dried bull penises. They call them pizzle because that just sounds nicer, you know. Like I I'm just giving my my dog a bull like a bull schlong. Like nobody nobody likes that idea. So um, yeah, I use that to like turn it into a broth and then make like pasta out of it. And I I shouldn't pick on Italian food as much as I do, but I like constantly harp on it just because like in at least from what I can tell, if you do something with pasta the wrong way, people get real mad. But it's not like that with a lot of other food. Like, I mean, Mexican food has been butchered, absolutely butchered. People, I mean, you know, Taco Bell exists. I love it. And people think that's an extension of Mexican food. And they're not wrong necessarily. But that's so far away from, you know. Yeah, like the fucking family in Oaxaca's recipes that they've passed down. Like, that's not Taco Bell. Yeah, but nobody's getting mad. Like, you know what I mean? So when you have all these people get real mad about like somebody, somebody like messing around with their favorite pasta dish, it's like, it's so funny. It's really funny to me just making people mad about that stuff because they're just, don't you have anything better to think about? And like, you know, I'm the food writer who's like supposed to study all this 
stuff, you know, anyway, but I just think it's really funny that that's something that people really worry about. Like, again, like you mentioned, we eat it and then we take a dump. <laughs> it's like we all, we, everybody poops, uh, you know, we all fuck, we all shit and we all eat except for those weird techies. I mean, I guess they're eating, but I was around these people. They would drink these soylents because they're like, I don't care about food. Yeah. And I'm like, other than sex, what pleasure do we have in life? And it's much easier to get food than sex. You know, it's uh, you got to have a willing participant for sex. It's pretty easy to get food. That's true. I I, I don't know. Maybe it was just because like they're like, I don't understand why they wouldn't prioritize eating like something. You don't you don't even have to cook. You spend so much money on soylent. You could spend that on like a, a meal at like anywhere, really, because those things are not cheap. No, they're expensive. These are like meal replacement drinks for the people who don't know what they are. And they're like five, six, seven, eight bucks each. Yeah. I mean, they're they're nutritious and they have all the I basic guess. things for you, but they don't taste like much. And no, like cardboard. Yeah, they they I mean, they're, I think they try to make them taste like chocolate or, or whatever. But like, like, what do you what do you do outside of work then? Like, do you? I mean, like, if somebody's going to sit around and drink Soylent, are they really going to get that much fun out of playing a video game to unwind? Or, like, or obviously they're probably not going out to get um, drunk with their friends. Or, like, I feel like, because, like, that nothing sounds like it tastes good to them. No. You know, like, so I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know about those guys. And maybe they're just chasing a dream to be, like, the next Mark Zuckerberg. But who wants that? No, no. Yeah. Mark Zuckerberg. I was uh, speaking of people who get no joy from food. I went away for July 4th and I was with a bunch of couples I didn't know. And one of the guys in the couple, let's just call him Bobby. Uh, <laughs> he has no sense of smell. And it's not just a COVID thing. He was born with no sense of smell. And he said taste for him is very dull. And so food for him, texture based. We were talking about our favorite candies, and he's like, I love gummies. I've never heard anyone say their favorite food is gummies. Um, but I was, like, thinking about this time where I dated this woman who had some disorder. I don't even know what it is. Like, an, it's a human disorder where your body doesn't process some protein or some enzyme or something, and you mm -hmm. stink all the time. You kind of smell like fish. And I dated a woman who had that, and we ended up breaking up because I couldn't stand to be around her and I thought I was going crazy because she was otherwise a lovely person she's married now I hope she's with someone who has no sense of smell this is awful she's a lovely person but it's just kind of a factual thing that happens to people I once worked with someone who had this as well and I'm thinking I hope that these people who don't smell are paired with these people who do smell but I guess I can't criticize him for not loving food yeah sure and that's like when you when you think about it that's like when you when you eat there's there's that aspect to it, you know, like you'll forgive something for being mushy if it tastes great, mm -hmm. you know, but if it's just plain mushy and doesn't have a good flavor to it, then why bother eating it? So I, I guess this is kind of fascinating thinking about this poor guy who, who can't smell. And I'm sure he doesn't feel like he's missing out on much. He's been like that. His whole life. No, no. I asked, he was a very open guy. I asked him like a million questions. He was happy to talk about it. He didn't give a fuck. Yeah. You find your joy in other places. Now, if you smell like fish all the time, then like, then people will go away from you, which is sad. You know, like Ugh, she was it, such it, a lovely person, right? So easygoing. The sex was like good. If I just didn't, you know, breathe through my mouth, like there was nothing oh. wrong. I feel like a shit person for for like saying I couldn't be with her, and also for even talking about it because she was so lovely. But like, it just was what it was. 
Did you tell her? No, we only went on like five or ten dates, you know. I think she was dating other people. Like, it wasn't serious, you know. Okay, all right. As long as it wasn't like, because, you know, I'm sure hearing that from multiple people is probably heartbreaking, you know, like. Uh, It's like if no one ever told her, there's a responsibility on me to tell her. Yeah. Which I don't know if they did or didn't. Uh, but if everyone's told her, there's kind of a responsibility on me not to say anything because it's just kind of mean. I wonder if you can smell yourself in that case and you think that's odd or you just get used to that constantly. I don't know. I don't know. I was in her car once and it was like, I don't know, it was bad. The car was really what did it for me. I'm like, is oh, we, I'm thinking in the future if we live together, is it going to, you know what? I'm such a shit person. She was so lovely. She's like nothing wrong with her at all. Well, no, I mean, this guy, it's like sensory stuff. Just it, pervades everything so you know like um a bed Mm -hmm. you know things like that like uh, it's just clothes or the couch or you think about stuff like that and that's like that's literally that's it's just part of being alive and if you can't stand some of these things it's like it's never going to get out of your head that's the worst part about it is you're just going to obsess over it after a while and be like and you're going to feel you're going to feel nuts yeah it's sort of like why you can't honestly put yourself through that unless you're the guy who can't smell fair enough i i was i don't know how true this is but apparently i hope it's in the movie with joaquin phoenix the napoleon movie but apparently napoleon when he was coming home from his various you know escapades he would write to josephine being like hey girl i'm coming home don't shower for a week because he just Uh, loved that stank (laughs) i mean i feel like they Hygiene back then, I'm guessing, was a lot different anyway. But he was into her stinky pheromones. He's like, the smellier you are from your sweat, the more I'm into it. And I just, I love that. I'm kind of that way, too, when it lines up. And it rarely does. Like, I, I Miranda, my girlfriend, like, when she's smelly, I'm like, yes, please, more. Wow. To a certain point. To a certain point. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, that that is interesting. I mean, we're, we're built in with those, yeah. with those like, instincts to be attracted to that kind of stuff. I mean, if something smells funny to me, I'm just going to like admit it or start laughing. Yeah. Probably that's usually my first reaction is like to just crack up when something smells weird. But um, I'm also like two years old when it comes to the sense of humor. So you ever seen like uh, horses or animals in the barn when they're all like in heat and the vagina is all swollen and then the male horse just like takes a sniff and then it makes this face like, yes, please. I'm about to get ready. Yeah, I've seen that face, but I've only seen it from my cats, and I don't think it's because of that. I think it's um, (laughs) like they make this weird face when they smell some certain certain things. Yeah, they they kind of hold their mouth open. Yeah, it's hilarious. It looks like they're just about to shout or they're like upset or something. Like, yeah, it's really funny. Me and Miranda call it the face, and we're like, Kitty, stop making the face. Yeah, we call it the face too. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) So. You and I used to talk about how, like, and I was always so curious about it because I'm like, if I ever have to go at this thing alone, what would it look like? And you were telling me about your Substack, like, how do you grow that following? So that there, it's all gray in front of me. I don't. There was never a road or whatever. Like you and I, I don't know how, like, in what your circles are, like how 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 far your name goes or like not far at all. Right. And so when I, when I started it, you know, I'd had like freelance only career, you know, like when I came to food writing and I had been all over the place in terms of my regular day job. And um, you literally just don't know what's in front of you every five seconds. You, you know um, you just keep doing it. That's the only thing is like you, 
you start yeah. something and then you just don't you finish it even if you whiff i take every time i write something i i tr i swing for the fences and just like at a, i mean you know comedy too right you've done some stand-up i used to do stand-up yeah and just to sidetrack i think it's a very reasonable answer when people say why don't you do stand-up anymore because I didn't need to do it. Right. Like I did I didn't love it enough to need to do it and it's such such a difficult path that eventually you'll quit if you don't need to do it. And I imagine writing's the same way. Right, exactly. And I'll, you know, just like swinging for the fences with every piece thinking, "Oh shit, well I got a hit on my hands." Like and if if it doesn't and you think you did just a great job, those are the ones that bomb the most and the hardest and then you're like, "Ah, oh, well, fuck. Like I'm not going to get rewarded for for this great piece of genius I just came up with. And, and like, that means monetarily, you know, like mm -hmm. it, people will connect with something like that. Then they will, they will pay you. If you have a hit, people will actually just come out of, not out of nowhere, but they will support you more when something like that happens and you just cannot guarantee it. And that's the frustrating part. And you just see little incremental growths. Like you, if you're lucky and you have like statistics on something, as long as the stats are going up, in like a diagonal thing with little bumps, you know, up and down, a lot of times down, but every time something goes down, that's when you swing real hard again, then hopefully you get back up. And yeah. if the big graph looks like, you know, a diagonal path upwards, you're doing okay. I just, I remember I had a day job. I was working in the tech industry. I started my first podcast. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a handle on my voice. I didn't even know what I wanted to do. I didn't know how to do it. I felt an urge, a need to do it, but I just remember seeing like, oh, when I first launched my first podcast, I had like 10 listeners, 20, I don't know, some low number, and they're all my friends, and then like by the third episode, it goes to one, and I just remember seeing those stats and the courage it took to keep on creating mm -hmm. when no one was listening to grow my craft, and that was my fear that when I did this, that would happen again, and I it hasn't. And not only that, like drop off on this, I don't mean to show off. The numbers aren't huge. They're relatively small, but the drop off is, isn't there. And the listen through rate is really high. My old listen through rate when I was a hobbyist five years ago was like the first five minutes, everyone's stopped. And the listen through rate on this show is to the end, like with, with a high percentage and it's very comforting. So I'm watching those lines and I'm starting from a place that's like way better than where it was at when I was a hobbyist, but I was just so scared to have to deal with that again. Right. And so a little, I mean, I'm, I'm sure some people will reach out to you and ask you how you do what you do for a living and how they can get into it if they want. And I just tell them, just don't, it's such a hard thing to tell somebody not to give up when they're at their lowest readers or lowest listeners or whatever, because like, because they think they're worthless but the thing is like man it just you just got to get people to listen to you and they will if you have a body of work people will look at it and if there's something in there that they like about what you wrote or if they like you they'll come back they yeah. will always come back they they may not read like or listen all the time but sometimes when they do come back they'll listen to all of it or they'll read all of it and they'll remember why they loved you to the to begin with and so it's just a matter of that like snowball thing. And eventually I like for some people, it's sort of like they just hit it big. They get discovered or whatever. That's not really what's ever happened to me. It's always just been a slow like ascent. Well, you're comparing yourself to others like that who from your vantage point made it quickly big, whatever. Yeah. You've already failed. The only person you should be comparing yourself is to yourself, right? Who you were yesterday. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, you know, I, I, I have all these food writing peers and stuff like that. And when I say peers, like it's crazy to see 
you know, somebody I follow on, on Instagram said she was moving on from her prestige magazine job after two years. And um, I found out like she revealed later in this post that she's 24 and she had, she was talking about leaving her wonderful job for uh, her book, which is going to do well probably, you know, and just, I'm 42. I never got that two years at like a prestige magazine right out of school. And then you got a book deal. Like, like I will, it's, I love myself, but I will never get that into to like, like look at somebody like that and compare myself to them would only make me want to hurt myself. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I know exactly what you mean, but go, go on. Right. Like, so you just, you know, when it comes to people who are asking for help with that stuff, you like, just put the blinders on. Um, and then if people come to you and ask you for work, you know, to work for them, like that should be a huge indicator that you're making a difference or people want to talk to you or like, and even before that point, you have to get into the work to understand what you're doing. So you have to do work that no one's going to like and that you're not going to like for a long time. And you're right. You asked me that question earlier. Like if I if I um, wasn't doing this for a living, like would I still do it? And, you know, it took me a minute to think about it because it can it can be crushing. And that's what, kind of what we were just discussing. And so I work in this small office. I would still be, happily come back to this office and and just let it all out and write and do all this stuff. And I think there was some point in um, when I was doing it where I just decided not to give a shit at all. And I think once I let go of what everybody else, what I thought everybody else thought, that's when my Substack really took off. Yeah. My food writing really took off because I started making dick jokes. I started making, <laughs> you started being yourself. Yeah. I just, but you know, my, my only, my only rule for myself was even if I was, if I'm angry or if I'm sad or whatever, don't attack people. Yeah. Don't don't be hateful. Don't be spiteful. And as soon as I see that in the writing, then I just take it out. And then um, I just you know operate that way. Just because like if I actually use that subsect event about hateful things or angry things, I just I don't think I it would be it would feel good and it wouldn't be exactly who I am. So as long as you just stop giving a shit about what everybody else thinks, you can do some pretty amazing things. That's what I think. Yeah, no, I mean, it sounds like you're, you've got a handle on your voice, what you want to do with it. You don't want to be hateful. Yeah, that's all. Everybody's got something interesting to say, I think. But, um, you know, everybody's experiences are different and their experiences might be boring, you know? So it's really, it's kind of just who you are and how you, how you like see all that stuff. That's how I, I see it. Yeah, I'm just kind of drawing the comparisons. Like, I don't really like doing hardcore political analysis work and mm-hmm. I had to do it for my old job, but like just kind of understanding where your strengths lie. Uh, when I ask you, how'd you get started or how does one do it? You said it's kind of a gray area. There's no like specific answer. Is that, do you agree with that or? Yeah, just like, so if you, if you have a personal hero, I'm sure you've had a couple. Sure. Larry David. Go <laughs> right. Well, I mean, like if you ever got a chance to maybe talk to Larry David or something like that and you asked him how he did it, as opposed to another one of your heroes, let's say, you know, like you compare their stories and you ask them like, cause you think that they had a path. They didn't have a path. They had no idea what the fuck they were doing. And they had no idea like who's going to like them and who's because Larry David's an abrasive asshole. Like, yeah. like, but he made that, he just kept hammering and hammering at that, like that personality. And for whatever reason, just like the never giving up on, I, I just like, he would just double down on being a bigger dick every time, like something didn't work, I think, you know, and then, and just that approach works too. Yeah. It worked for him, but it might not work for me, you know? Right. Right. So, um, that and that's not you 
you know, like I feel like you wouldn't, that's not necessarily your, what makes you happy. So like, yeah. I think he gets glee out of being a dick probably in some fashion. Maybe, or at least having a persona that's a dick. It's funny when I was mulling over quitting my corporate job, I somehow got like a 40 minute, 30 minute zoom call with my future boss, the guy who used to be the program director at the radio station that syndicated my show. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm mulling over quitting my job. I'm mulling over giving radio a go. And so I kind of described him my whole path and journey as a hobbyist, taking it very seriously. And so I said, you've given people like me their first show before, right? And he's like, yeah, I have. And I'm like, how would one, given kind of my path, get a job like that? And his answer to me was, I don't know. Which I just thought was so funny because I'm here's a guy that's given people their first radio show. And when I'm asking him how to do it, he's like, I don't know. There is no prescribed path. Everyone is different. Everyone comes at it from a different angle. You know, there's people who are more political focused in radio. Maybe they were, uh, you know, worked for a political party. You're you were, got into this via stand up comedy. Like, you know, everyone's different. And I can't give you an answer, which I found both very disconcerting, but also very comforting because I knew that if I just kept at it, like maybe it would happen for me kind of thing. And I just, I thought when you said it's gray as to how you can get your start making money in writing or, or get a good sub stack going, I just, I was reminded of that anecdote as well. Yeah, because they don't know. They have no idea, but like the longer you go on, what'll happen is you'll be able to identify what a potentially good like opportunity for anything is, you know, like if the right, if somebody you've always followed talks to you all of a sudden, you, you did something right. And so you know to try to take advantage of getting to know these people or like when they say, hey, listen, I think somebody's got an open job somewhere. Do you want to talk to them? Like you kind of you kind of feel out. It's not all about jobs and gigs and stuff like that, but you want to feel out like what worked for you in the past and what what you know, like what what got you to that point um, to begin with. And then you think like you can pick and choose and see what actually means something and and you can spot the bullshit too. I'm sure you can. I'm sure you can. I also, yeah. something that um, came up for me when you were talking, you were talking about this 24 year old girl and how if you compare yourself to her, you end up feeling unhappy. Yeah. When I started doing stand up, I ran the shittiest open mic in the shittiest venue in San Francisco, the Purple Onion. And this girl started coming to the mic, and you could tell she had the beginnings of a really good voice. Like she was really naturally funny, but she sucked at stand up because she was just getting started and she'd get up there and rant and it would bomb. And every time she got up there, the rant would be different. And I'm thinking to myself, why are you doing this? Why don't you just get some like solid material? She just kept at that. And within a year, she was able to go on those same rants and she had her craft honed. It's almost like Joan Rivers in a way, like she could talk about anything. And she had such a affected millennial voice she moved to New York. I'm still hosting the shitty open mic. I can, I can barely book paid gigs. And when I say paid, I mean like $20 a night, dude. Yeah. Um, she moves to New York. She starts writing for the New Yorker. She starts like, I don't know, she's got 200,000 followers on Twitter. She gets her first book deal. She's doing like shows here. Well, Caroline's clothes, but like Caroline's, like, you know, all the big clubs in New York. And then I get, and I'm so jealous of her, right? Every time I think about her, I like, can't deal with it. And then I get a DM being like, hey, I did your podcast three years ago. And I like said some things that like she claimed to violate an NDA from her former employer, which is such bullshit. She's like, could you take that down? And it really hurt my feelings. <laughs> uh, oh. And then I'm like, 
challenging her. I'm like, well, I'll take out the parts that violated your NDA. And she's like, please just take it down. And then I didn't. Uh, I have now. I took down my old podcast completely, but because um, it's just like so I could get canceled for some of the things that went on. It was a different time. It was like 2016. Um, but yeah, I guess I tell that long winded story to be like when I think of her and how quickly it happened for her and how she's younger, like I get jealous. But then when I think like, no, no, I'm working on my voice. My voice is better than it was yesterday. I'm really proud of what I accomplished channeling the other David Cooper. I don't, I don't care about her. I'm happy for a success. So, right. Exactly. Like that's, it's, I used to be angry about stuff like that. I've learned that, that there's no one. I don't want to say there's no point in it because, you know, like you, you think about like, why are you angry about it or whatever? Like envy, envy is why it's envy. Yeah. And then that's like, that's a useless energy. You know what I mean? Like that, that envy feeling just, it, that doesn't do anybody in the world any favors no like it, you can use that envious feeling to if you transform that energy into like being like well want you want something more do the work and you honestly want it you'll work you'll work for it and this isn't some capitalistic endeavor type thing that i'm encouraging no i mean creative work i don't mean work for money yeah creative creatively like you you can just you can do it it might just take a while but i really believe everybody can can do it it's just a matter of what catches fire and sometimes when the fire catches on early like if if you and i had gotten popular immediately like you know young i think that fucks you up more man we just as unhappy as we are now right exactly. <laughs> you know anytime i've achieved anything i've worked towards the next day i'm like i forget that that was the thing that was going to make me happy and i set my sights on something else you know that's yeah. i i wish i wasn't that way but i have that a little bit and and you're you're saying well what you're saying is like rather than focus on being jealous or envious or whatever, channel it into creative energy. I would further that by saying every minute you spend on that in that dysfunctional headspace where you're comparing yourself to others is like a waste of mental energy for a minute that could be put into like growing your craft, which which yeah. if you grow your craft, you'll get as good as those people that you're jealous of. Or, or you could just play video games and just like make yourself happy for the minutes that you would normally have felt like shit. You sure. know, like, like you can do anything with it. Just feeling like crap on... Um, deliberately feel, making yourself feel like crap and like and letting yourself cycle in it um, will make you not want to get out of bed. And you know what that feeling is. And, and it's just like, you know, not, you, you can do your best, not, you can try to fight feeling depressed by just avoiding, you know, bad cycles of stuff and you can't guarantee it, but you can, you can hedge your bets a lot. And, um, you know, and for people like you and me who just constantly keep up with it and constantly try, you just get, you fall a bunch and you're just like, you know, that's, that tumble was pretty funny. Yeah. At least you, you admit that, you know, like in retrospect, that was a pretty funny whiff or like, you know, you learn to live with it and you don't hate yourself because of it. And once you can let go of that kind of feeling, man, you could get, I'm telling you, you can do almost anything. I mostly agree with that. Yeah. I mostly agree with that. You know, if, if you have certain, you know, let, let's say you're, colorblind you may not be the great well, right, right you know you could be a great painter but maybe your your intimate knowledge of how color works like <laughs> there are is not going to shine through in your art maybe you should stick the grayscale like i just there are certain limitations <laughs> that people have but i i generally agree with you that's fair I, I mean that's pretty technical though so no i'm just it's an example of like you have certain like but if you stand around pointing at others saying they achieve more than me and i'm jealous and that's all you ever do you're like the person in high school who's like 
Like I could yeah. have been, yeah. I could have been great. I did great on my, I mean, Canadians don't write SATs, but they know what it is. You could be like, I got a high score on my SATs, but like you never did anything with it. You never like applied yourself. You maybe even got accepted to colleges, but you decided you just want to play video games and not go or whatever. Um, you know, I just think like, for example, if I had dwelled on that message that woman sent me to take down this podcast episode five years ago that she sent me and was just angry about it. And then I never did anything about, you know, I've done, I don't know, three, 4,000 hours of radio since then. And when I think about it, I just think about it as an anecdote of like, that really upset me at the time. The only way I got past it was by doing more work. And now I don't, you know, now I wouldn't give a shit. It, right. You know, and I, in fact, I took all those podcasts down because like, I, you know, if they made her look bad. They make me look bad, too. <laughs> yeah, sure. you so, know? You just take it as part of your formative stuff. And even you make mistakes, you're like, well, at least be able to identify what you fucked up on. You know, yeah. if you can identify what it was that you fucked up on and then you just don't do it again. That's it. That's what learning from a mistake is. Just don't do that dumb shit again. And now that you've done it, you know the signs, you know, you know what it means. Uh, when I when I first started doing comedy, this guy who was like a mentor to me, whatever. I don't know. He, he, people tell these themselves these narratives. I don't often know how true they are, but he's like, the reason I started stand up is because the fear of not trying it became less than the fear of failing. And yeah, I like that. I mean, I don't know how true it is. It's kind of a cliche. It's kind of oversimplifying things. Do you feel that's true for you, like with creative work? Yeah, yeah. No, I at this point uh, with creative stuff, uh, what I. But I'm also telling people when they're curious about it is that I work off impulse. So, um, you know, if I have this childish idea that, you know, I want to make a pie out of Play-Doh and see how it tastes, um, as long as the thing's not going to kill me, you know, like I'll, I'll do it because if I think, well, am I, if I don't make this pie out of Play-Doh, am I going to regret not trying it? <laughs> I love it how it's on such, I'm as, I'm talking about these profound, like creative concepts, the fear of not trying, outweighing the fear of failing. And you've somehow related it to making a disgusting pie, but I love it. Please keep going. But I mean, like, you know, that's, but that's the core of my, my writing is that if I, if I think, well, I regret, if I'm going to regret or constantly be curious about not doing something, um, then I'll have already fucked it up, you know? So like, that's why I just act on childish impulses. The last thing I wrote was um, for paid subscribers of my newsletter, but uh, my fiance Davida and I came up with this idea to make a sandwich. And this sandwich had nothing but things that had a physical effect on you. So there was uh, wasabi, which makes your nose all burn, burn, burning up, you know, like. You got to put psychedelics in there too, like magic mushrooms, but go on. I avoided drugs this time. All right, this time. <laughs> um, Szechuan peppercorns, which make your, your mouth numb. Yeah. Um, I used, uh, pop rocks cause of the fizzy stuff. <laughs> You're psychotic. Go on. Yeah. Ginger to, to kind of have a different kind of burn. Um, what else there was, there was hot ones, the last dab hot sauce, which is the last hot sauce they eat on that, that show because it's the hottest of all of them. And then there was, God, I think there was one last thing. Oh, it was sour candy. So we put all these terrible things into a sandwich to see like how much physical, reaction you can have to one bite of food and it was the most fucked up bite of anything i've ever had i've never felt that many sensations all at once and it was amazing like <laughs> i the, the thing tasted terrible it was absolutely awful but the amount of like physical exhilaration i got from like eating all this stuff that your body would normally be like stop doing that was 
was awesome. And so if I had not done that, I would not know how that, like that memory, I wouldn't have that memory and that feeling because I can just relive that euphoria of like how messed up that sandwich was. And I am, I will go to my grave happy just because we tried it. And so it's like, if I, if I hadn't done that, like, and if nobody reads it, who cares? Like I did it, you know, mm-hmm. I feel good. I love how you've taken this high order artistic concept, the fear of not trying being greater than the fear of failure related it to an individual thing like this insane sandwich. Maybe that's why your writing is so hilarious and great. You pour like this, this passion and depth into these incredibly stupid things. Yeah. And I'm also kind of, people say I'm a nihilist because I don't seem to care about anything in particular, Um, which is not a, people think nihilism is like a bad thing, but I'm more like, well, you know what? It's more like just fuck it. That's literally my entire attitude. So if it comes down to sandwiches or if it comes down to being creative, like uh, they all live in the same headspace. They do like, yeah, they, they literally live in the same space. So I'm like, you know what? Might as well just try it, you know? And um, you know, if it, if that sandwich was terrible and it didn't do anything, that would have just been a waste, but that would have been funny too. Like I, you know, I, I would have found something in it, you know? Yeah. I mean, did it make you feel alive that sandwich? Oh, more than anything. And I, it's a sandwich. This entire sentence is stupid. <laughs> a sandwich made me feel alive today. Yeah. It's like your version of that scene in Ratatouille when the food critic eats the Ratatouille. Yeah. And it reminds him of his childhood and really makes him feel alive and connected. Yeah. Uh, what did you call the sandwich? Uh, okay, this is this was her, uh, my fiance's idea, too. So it was uh, pan a pain. Pan as in the French. Bread, yeah. Word, word for bread. And ah, uh, like, and like, what is ah? Uh, and in French, a u. Okay, yeah, pan o uh, pan o pain. I like it. It's yeah, pan o yeah, pain. So that's what we ended up calling it because it was just a uh, sensory overload. It was a painful sandwich to eat. Did your uh, future ex-wife try it as well? <laughs> uh, no, because she doesn't smell like fish. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so she came up with the name. She egged you on, and she just stands there and watch you both enjoy your life and suffer at the same time. Yeah, this mysterious person you're talking oh, about. Oh, I'm talking about Davida. Come on. She's- <laughs> no, she she had the sandwich too, and she loved it. I used to introduce my then-wife, now ex-wife, even though I had no intentions of getting divorced uh, as my future ex-wife. I'm just being an idiot. Come on. <laughs> I, I I feel you, and I feel your... I feel your uh, you're, you're seething anger under you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm so happy I'm divorced. It's one of the worst things that ever happened to me. And I don't regret it for a second. And I know losing that job th- that like I lost in, in November is like it felt like a terrible thing. And I knew in that moment I'll eventually come to see this as the biggest favor anyone's ever done for me. Like all these traumatic things and shitty things that have happened in my life where I felt powerless. I look back and I think I'm so glad they happened. I wouldn't change it for the world. I wouldn't be here today to discuss this happy with where I'm at if these things didn't happen. But when you're going through one of those things, even though you know that's the final state, it, it can't, it doesn't feel that way. Yeah, we're, it's the worst thing ever. But like, you know, as long as you were able to identify that as it was happening, you're fine. It could be this podcast, you know, that you could be the next, well, not next Joe Rogan. Let's fucking dethrone that guy. Just, just, <laughs> just dethrone him. And then you, you could just take his place. This was the kind of conversation I wanted to have with you on the air for so long. Yeah, because we couldn't do it before. I mean, you had a you had a format to stick to. I mean, we could. We had a format. We had time bounds. We had the concept of like that was great 
to grow my craft with. Like structure is great to grow one's craft with, I think. Sure. There's like a reason, I mean, I'm going to sound really cliche and trying to sound smart when I'm not, but there's like a reason like most Shakespeare things follow that format. Most symphonies follow like the four movement kind of format. Uh, structure is great, but the thing is you come in and this concept of like anyone tuning in right now needs to know who are you talking to? Why do I care about them? And like, you know, what do I need to know to join the conversation right now? And that is constantly on your mind. And to not to mention, you take a break every 10 minutes. And when you come in, like that, you got to set up what just happened because people are tuning in for 10 minutes and it's like that. And if you aren't doing that, you know, you get told you're doing a bad job. People aren't listening. You know, it's so oppressive, the format. Anyone who's listening to this knows who I am or is at least curious enough to figure it out. And right. they will have listened to you from the beginning. So they know who you are from my introduction of you. Yeah, no, no, no. But, you know, yeah, you're right. You, But you learn to work in those confines. And once you're able to do that. Um, you know, I have to write short articles, but uh, for my day job at the takeout and some sometimes they're news related and they, they can't be that exciting. But you work within kind of the structure of something short and you want to get as much information out there as you can within within the confines of this small space. And then you get good at it. And then, you, you know, you can use those skills to then have a cool substack on your own, you know, like and without any without any rules that you need that need to be set or whatever you just yeah you get good at it i hear you yeah I, I feel like the parallel for me is i still i'm still on that network against my better judgment for you know half an hour of three nights a week with with a host and it's, it's like i'm not losing the muscle memory of how to work in that structure but well you still have to have facetime you know in in a different outlet you know yeah. where people realize that you exist in multiple locations and that makes you look really good too all they have to do is look at a picture of me and then they realize, eh, not so much. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> we pick our mediums for a reason. They don't look at my face either. So I'm an ugly motherfucker. Anything else you want to chat about or I mean, anything on your mind? What, what's what's doing for today? Oh, so we got this is delicate. So I am sitting here wearing a dress, a dress. I wish a Writers Guild of America East shirt. I am part of a union. I'm part of the Writers Guild. And um, are you on fucking strike, dude? I am not on strike. I'm technically a journalist. We're in a different section. Um, I'm part of the the Onions uh, Union because the the site I write for is part of that network of sites. Um, this is conversations worth having, just because it's a weird situation. But my my employer has decided to enable the use of artificial intelligence. Our artificial intelligence pieces on our sites. Annoying. Yeah. It's not an ideal situation for somebody like me. They rolled out this stuff without telling us that they were going to real, like, you know, do it or plan it out in any way, really. They just deployed it. And some of the articles that were put on the sites that are um, our sister sites and such, um, some had a, one had a racial slur in it. Great. Um, one that was, describing um the the chronological order of star wars movies was out of order great <laughs> like, like it was just stuff like that and so yeah that's that's really what's been on my mind is thinking about how artificial intelligence plays a role in now my everyday life which wasn't the case ever like whoever who would have ever thought and so like like it's just been a really weird week thinking a robot and not even a robot it's just this program that's taught how to put words together and scrape the internet. 
for information in like a orderly way that's legible to humans like might take over something i'm doing and that's just like a weird thing because i'm all i do is write about food who the fuck thought a robot like me being afraid of you know code would like like code would threaten my existence but like if i don't have a job i can't eat i can't you know like that's it's really like it's like a weird situation and i just think that's a whole different conversation but i mean it's fascinating i just the robots don't have taste buds so you know yeah well so that's what i have I have that. I can taste something and I can write about the way something tastes. The robot can only guess and based off of what anybody else has said on the internet. And the other thing is that I, I'm not convinced that a robot can be funny um, yet. I think they can be funny. Like there's probably some algorithm to humor that, that works, but you need somebody to input whether or not they find something funny. And so it can have feedback to learn whether or not something is like, like, what is it about this set of words that registered more funny? I, for a long time, thought computers wouldn't be able to do creative work. Do you know the concept of the Turing test? Yes. Okay. Uh, for those who don't know, it's when a some output of an AI, so let's say an, an article or maybe a symphony or maybe a recipe, who knows? It could be some output of an AI, someone experienced with building an AI, and that's an important part of it. Someone who's knowledgeable as to what AI can do cannot tell the difference between the human creating this output and the computer. The traditional thing would be a conversation. So you have a, a typed conversation, like a chat message conversation for however long, and an expert who's built sort of chat bots, if you will, cannot tell the difference between an AI and a real person. That would be passing the so-called Turing test in its classical form, but in the general form, it could be a, an article on a food website. I was not convinced the Turing test would ever be kind of passed by computers for the longest time. I'm now completely convinced. And if it can be passed for one thing, it can be passed for anything. It's just a matter of training a better AI, having a better computer system to process huge volumes of data. And I think it's inevitable. And I, I don't fear it. I just, I'm not convinced it'll be in our lifetime, but it might be. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's happened so quick. Well, for writing, definitely, but not, yeah, for, not, not for things like designing an airplane or... Right, right. You know, things like this. Um, yeah, creative work. It's odd. You would think that that would be the last thing that they could do. But um, it's like the imagery stuff, the deep fakes and videos and just being able to replicate the way somebody sounds and looks. Um, actual written word. Like that seems like the craziest thing to be able to be fooled by. I feel like there was this crazy time when like cameras, like, like you know, uh, developed film was like good enough that it was really hard to fake images shot with a camera right to the point where like photoshop and and then images were easy to fake there was like a period in news where like you'd see something and you could have a pretty good chance of it being true sure i'm sure the russian you know what fsa or whatever or f fks whatever the russian <laughs> secret services kgb i guess at the time and the cia like they could probably fake things yeah but now it's like you can't believe anything you see no and it's wild. But we as humans lived like that for the longest time before photographs, right? Yeah. Any media outlet could print something and you wouldn't be sure whether it was true. Yep. And so it's for the longest time, word of mouth or written word was our only way to get information on any large mass media scale and you couldn't trust it. So now we're just back to that. Yeah, pretty much. And um, I was, did you ever see that picture of the Pope wearing that puffy jacket? 
I know, but was it like the first big deep fake or whatever? It was a big deep fake and it was just this Pope wearing this sick jacket. It was amazing. It looked so cool. And, um, and everybody was fooled by it. Everybody thought that the Pope had worn this like super cool new jacket. Yeah. It looks completely real. Doesn't it look real? Yeah. Yeah. It blew up the internet. Millions of people saw it millions. And, um, I believed it. I believe that was real. And then we found out that it wasn't real. And my favorite part about this story about, about this whole thing was that the guy who came up with this, this is beyond viral. This showed up on the news. It showed up on all sorts of stuff is that I know the guy who did it. Wow. And, um, I, I worked with him and I don't want to give his identity away cause he asked, but let's just say we worked at a restaurant together for a while. And his name was Adolf Hitler. No, I just, yeah, his name was Adolf Hitler. No, we worked together and, um, coincidence completely. The guy loved Jews, loved them. Yes, exactly. So this was a hobbyist graphic designer. Not even, he just put in a prompt in an AI thing and it just, it, it generated the Pope with this really cool jacket. Yeah world thought it was real because i thought well you know maybe like gucci's designing some cool stuff for the pope who knows i really don't know how any of that stuff works i'm not saying people who work in restaurants are dumb please don't take it like that i think there's some geniuses who work in that industry but that person is not a technical computer scientist at best they're a hobbyist and the fact that they could create that is crazy to me he just put a he just put it in, in um in uh, what was it? Mid journey or what is that? What is, I think it's called mid journey. That software. Don't know it. That's what developed it. And just, he just put it on Reddit and, the, and it just took a life of its own. He couldn't control it. And it was wild seeing this and realizing that that was my buddy who did that, you know, and I like, we're, we're at a weird point, man. Yeah. I could send uh, your fiance Davida photos of you with another woman doing some kinky shit and it would be a deep fake. I think she might be able to figure out certain parts of the picture weren't true. Oh, well, if you did that to my girlfriend, Miranda, she would know it was untrue because she's like, no one's willing to sleep with you. I, you must have an interesting relationship. then. No, I'm. she's like, when you call your, she got mad at me the other day. She's going to be mad that I'm saying this, but it's towards the end of the episode, whatever. She won't make it this far. She's like, when you're performing, interviewing people, whatever, and you say no one would want to sleep with you as like a shtick. I know it's a joke. <laughs> It reflects badly on me. <laughs> uh, I just thought that was so funny. I'm like, come on. She's like, you're insulting me. You're saying you're worthless and that I'm worthless for wanting you. And I'm like, come on. <laughs> right. You're using her as the foil. Yeah. I'm, I think I convinced her to, I convinced her not to be mad. Cause I was like, come on. I'm you know, it's clear. I'm joking. Yeah. I mean, I feel like dudes do that uh, a lot, you know, men specifically like to make that joke. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Or maybe it was a deep fake making the joke. I didn't even put out this episode. Oh yeah. I'm actually, I'm actually, I've been replaced by a robot. This whole, this whole conversation, it's real good AI, you know, like um, the AI program that I am is now capable of making jokes about shoving toast up your ass. So, you know, Dennis, I'll make the jokes around here. All right. <laughs> Them's the rules. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It's like really great to see you. I really enjoyed working with you and I really now, but especially then appreciated your time coming on, coming on my shows and everything. Yeah. This is just, it's just fun to talk to somebody who makes stuff for a living. Like, you know, it doesn't have, I don't have to know how, you know, the engineering of a podcast works, but you, you make it happen and you, you, 
may not write about food, but you, you get it. I mean, it's the same type of mental process, I think. You know? I like me some food. I like me some fucking food. I was just in Copenhagen. What, who just says that? Who just drops that? Like, oh, I was just in Copenhagen. Come on. Some pompous fucking asshole named David Cooper. <laughs> Yeah, and but I didn't. I don't know. I just I was thinking of the bear and how the guy goes yeah. to Copenhagen. I, yeah. I w- w- there's some great restaurants there, but I didn't want to spend that kind of money on any of them. So I didn't go to like Noma or anything like that. Best humble brag you got? Give it to me. Give it to me. Uh, well, now that I'm on the spot, I can't. I once had a 45 minute phone call with Rick Moranis. That's my. That's my best. That's my. I don't think I'll do better than that in my life. Hey, hey we got to rest our laurels on something, you know. Come on, you got to give me one. I just gave you one. Well, I was on a podcast that I really liked. Uh, we were talking about Anthony Bourdain. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on his his former assistant um, had a podcast. I, so you were on the podcast with Anthony Bourdain's assistant. Well, yeah. And so he had just been on it, like not terribly long before. And thinking that he um, spoke on that mic made me feel really cool. Oh, that is cool. That is really cool because he had been on the podcast. And I, he was not that many guests before me, if I remember correctly. And then, of course, he died. Yeah terrible so we got to talk about that after the mic was off for a little bit and i you know it's not my my loss to claim because i never knew the guy i never met the guy but it felt better to talk about it after you know like i had some kind of connection to this guy that was my last hero so that i will always remember that as being like a high point even though the i don't think the podcast like super popular or famous or anything like that it was just that idea was really cool I think about that with toilets, like public toilets that I use. Uh, like I'm as I'm sitting there, what other people have sat here? Have I taken a shit on the same toilet as Marilyn Monroe? Like I, I just, <laughs> I wonder if you, every single person, you just sort of line them up, photographs of them on the wall. I, I must have taken shits on toilets where some pretty famous people have taken shits. Well, it gets real deep because then you imagine, you know, your turd in the sewer. Oh. And it could have touched somebody... Somebody's famous. My turd could be co-mingling with blue bloods. I could have a turd. I've I've been to England, humble brag. I wonder if I have a turd that was just hanging out with Queen Elizabeth. Rest in peace, her turds. Yeah, could. You like our particles could have touched. Wow. Yours and mine even. <laughs> but not the AIs. They won't know the joy of sharing turds in the same sewer as the queen. Dennis, thanks for being there. <laughs> On that note, I think we I think we covered it. I mean, that to end there is just is the only thing, the only rational thing to do. Yeah, I I would say that too. Thanks for having me, man. It's great to talk to you. You too. Uh, the other rational thing being never showing up for this in the first place. Uh, <laughs> but you didn't make it that far. Thanks, Dennis. Appreciate your time. Sure. Talk to you later, man.